Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers on mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Good morning, Renew. Thank you again for having me. Uh, one of the ways I know that Femi is a humble man is because he keeps hugging short people like me. Very grateful for you, my brother. Very grateful. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, and we will be reading from verse 16 down to 34. Acts chapter 16, I beg your pardon, Acts chapter 17, Acts 17 from verse 16 down to 34. My assignment this morning is on the topic of preaching missionally, and uh, there are a few texts of scripture I know that expound that as well as this one. But just as you're turning to Acts chapter 17, what was your least favorite subject in high school and why? Wow, 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 maths, that's the first one <laughs> that came out. Biology, biology was fantastic for me. Come on, man. Chemistry, anyone? Chem oh, yeah, of course you, Femi says I love chemistry. PhD in chemistry, ah, shocking. Um, anyone disliked physics here? Thanks. I, dude, I think the highest I got in, um, in high school in my physics might have been anywhere between 15 or 13%. <laughs> I am not exaggerating, man. Usually when I got 3% in class, like the class would be like, well done, Christian. Well done, you've actually tried. Now here's the deal. It's not because I was dumb. The funny thing is now I love physics, especially like astrophysics, how planets relate to each other, how like there's one planet in our orbit that goes the other way around. I can start geeking out on this stuff clearly. But in high school, I was like, it were like water and electricity. So here's what happened. I had just joined high school. I was telling this to, to Scott. I grew up in the city, uh, loved the city, and then I went to a boys' boarding school outside the city that was supposed to be this prestigious school. And it was a really well-run you know, um, missionary school. But some of the teachers weren't so great. The physics teacher, this is my first physics lesson in my life. The, the physics teacher comes and tells us how someday we are going to learn the latent heat of what he called, because of his accent, a sabanji. I was like, what? Then he says it again, latent heat of a sabanji. So I'm like, city boy doesn't know that you don't challenge a teacher in class. Apparently, asking questions is a bad thing. Yeah. But I raised my hand. I was like, excuse me, sir, what is a sabanji? And he was very offended. Then he tells me, you think you're better than the rest of us? You're making fun of my accent. I'm like, I have never heard that word in my life. You see that confused look on your face? That was me. So apparently what he meant was the latent heat of a sponge. And now because he's offended, a sponge or a sponge, how you pronounce it, now because he's offended, they used to do this thing, I don't know if you guys have this, where you're pinched inside your inner thigh, right? I had never experienced that. So I'm sitting and this guy starts coming for my inner thigh and I'm like, boss, I don't know what you're going for, but you take one more step and you and I are not going to be friends. So you can imagine this little 14-year-old kid challenging this 40-year-old man. That was the end of physics for me. I had no heart for physics. 
I had no head for physics. I had no hope for physics. I wouldn't bother studying for physics. My greatest prayer was, Lord, get rid of physics. What I hope you see in the text is the opposite of my situation. That when we have a heart for the lost, we will inevitably have a head for the lost. And we can have great hope for the lost. What I'm hoping you see, and what I'm hoping we leave here with, is a passion for the lost. Specifically, a passion to engage the lost. So read with me from Acts chapter 17, verse 16 down to 34. I will end with saying the words, this is the word of the Lord, and you will respond by saying, write it on our hearts, we pray. This is the word of the Lord. Acts 17, from verse 16. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, Standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now, he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again on the, about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, 
and others with them. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, would you write this word on our hearts? Would you speak to me and speak through me to the end that our lives may be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ? Forbid it, Lord, that anyone except you should get glory at this time. And so now, Lord, what we do not have, please give us through your word. What we do not know, please teach us through your word. And what we are not, would you make us through your word? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Three mental handles. If you're trying to work through this text and begging God, God, give me a passion for the lost. Here are three mental handles. Heart, head, hope. Say that with me. Heart, head, hope. That's it. What I hope we see there is Paul's heart, Paul's head, Paul's hope. And that would ignite in us a passion to have the same heart for the lost, the same head for the lost, and the same hope for the lost. So let's just dive right in. Heart. We must ask God to give us a passion for the lost. In verse 16, scripture says, while Paul was waiting in Athens, his spirit was provoked. Now, quick context, how did Paul end up in Athens? Here's the story. He was in Thessalonica preaching the gospel. The people in Thessalonica ran him out of town. So he went to Berea, right? We all know about Berea. We want to be good Bereans. While he's preaching the gospel there, the same guys that he upset in Thessalonica come for him, chase him out of Berea. And so after that, Timothy and Silas tell him, why don't you go ahead of us to Athens and wait for us there? We'll come join you afterwards. Because here's the story. I know many of, many of us are like, we would have wanted to follow Paul. Because wherever Paul went, one of three things would happen. A revival, a riot, or both. <laughs> and Timothy and Silas are like, they, the, the scripture puts it gently, but this is my own imagination of it. It's like Timothy and Silas are like, dude, we love you. But when you go to Athens, please just sit down and shut up. Please. Please. You've already given us enough heat in Thessalonica. We were chased out of there. We were chased out of Berea. Please just go to Athens and chillax. We'll come join you. So that was the plan. Paul is like, okay, I'll go to Athens and I'll sit and I'll stay silent. But he gets there. And something happens that he cannot sit and he cannot stay silent. What happened? Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, Timothy and Silas at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. That word provoked has two meanings. It means he was roused to anger and he was deeply grieved. That's the, the two ideas in that word provoked. Angry and grieved in that specific word. Okay? Believe it or not, that's also God's heart. In Isaiah chapter 65... Verse 1 to 3, I'll read it for you in the interest of time. Here is God speaking. God is saying, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. A people who, here's the key word, provoke me to my face continually. And how do they do it? Sacrificing in gardens, and making offerings on bricks. In other words, their idolatry provoked me. What provoked Paul? 
He was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. God's heart is provoked by idols. Paul's heart is provoked by idols. Angry and grieved. Now, Paul, why are you so angry and grieved? God, why are you so angry and grieved by idols? Here's why. Because Paul and God, but in our context, Paul is jealous for the glory of God and zealous for the souls of men. Because Paul is jealous for the glory of God, he is angry that brick and mortar is robbing his God of glory. Paul is angry that the creator is being upstaged by sticks and stones. Paul is angry because he knows Habakkuk too, that the glory of the Lord should cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. He's angry because he knows Psalm 150, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And just as a sidebar, aren't you glad that's the order of those words? Let everything that has breath praise the Lord, as opposed to let everything that praises the Lord have breath. He's angry because his God, who is his life, is being robbed of glory. But he's also grieved because the image bearers who are meant to glorify God and enjoy him forever are not glorifying God and not enjoying him forever. That's what the Westminster Confession begins with. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. He knows that their joy is not going to be found in sticks and stones. And so he's grieved that these humans are worshipping something other than the only thing that can give them joy. So what does he do? He pursues them. Look at verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day and with those who happened to be there. His heart forced him to do something. He couldn't sit. If there was a phone call, if there was a phone in, back in that day, he'd have called Silas and Timothy and said, I know you guys told me to sit. I'm sorry. I, I can't. If you guys were here and you saw the idolatry in this city and you saw the pathetic lives these beautiful image bearers of God are living, you would not sit. To which they'd say, yeah, you're probably right. So he gets up and does something about it. And there's a change in strategy here in chapter 17 in Paul. You see, from chapter 11, pretty much, or rather chapter 8, when we are introduced to Paul until now, Paul's strategy is go to cities and go talk to the Jews. Show the Jews from the Old Testament that their real Messiah is Christ. Help them come to Christ. Even in Thessalonica and in Berea. That's why the Bereans went back to the Bible because those were people who were like, okay, let's go back and examine from our scriptures if this is true. But he gets to chapter 17 in Athens and the strategy change. He's not just talking to Jews. Did you notice it? He did talk to the Jews and he went to the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. It's like, who are you? I'm from Syria. Great, let me tell you. I don't care where you're from. It's the first time he's changed strategy. That's how powerful his passion is. He has God's heart and he's provoked to do something about the lost. Now in your Bibles when it says he went to the marketplace, that's not where they just sell yams and banana and plantain. That's not, that's not what that word means. The marketplace was literally where culture was formed. It's where government offices were. It's where shops were. It was the entertainment hub. It was where culture was formed. That's where this guy is going. 
as is true now was true then. That's a very intimidating space to be in. Because everyone kind of has an unsaid agreement. And you're showing up in here with saying, what? About what? He goes there and he preaches the gospel. And when he does preach this gospel, some people say he's a preacher of foreign divinities. In fact, they said he's, he's a, a preacher of foreign divinities, multiple. You see that phrase there? Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. See, in their minds, they'd never heard of Jesus. They'd never heard of a resurrection. So in Greek, the word for Jesus is Yesu. In Greek, the word for resurrection is Anastasis. Sounds like Anastasia. So they thought Paul was preaching about a male God called Yesu and a female God called Anastasia. A male God called Jesus and a female God called the resurrection. That's all they knew. They were polytheistic. They couldn't possibly have thought, you mean one God. It wasn't even in their heads. But he does not compromise the gospel. Knowing that people will be kind of confused by him, maybe be a big fan of him, he still goes there and preaches the gospel uncompromisingly. Now, you might be tempted to think when you read that, yeah, you know, if I was in Paul's position, surrounded by that many idols, I would do the same. And just to paint a picture of Paul's position, there was a saying at the time that there are more gods than humans in Athens. And it was true. <laughs> the population of Athens at the time was 10,000. But recorded in the same time period, there were 30,000 gods. It was a ratio of one to three. For every one human, you had three gods. Quite literally. So you and I might be tempted to say, yeah, you know, if I was surrounded by that many idols, even I would rise up and do something. Well, Lagos, are you surrounded by idols? Nigeria, are you surrounded by idols? I have a hunch. You guys tell me if I'm right. I think I might have a little bit of an idea on Nigeria's idols, particularly South Nigeria's idols. Because we can argue that for, for North Nigeria, it's mainly Islam. Okay, I, I don't know, you guys would have to tell me better. But I think, I have a, maybe a little bit of a beat on South Nigeria's idols. I think South Nigeria's idols is the South Nigerian dream. You know, you have the American dream. I think there's a real Nigerian dream. I think it's composed of six basic things. I think, tell me if I'm about right. I think it's composed of one spouse, two children, a three-bedroomed house, a four-wheel drive, a five-acre plot of land, and a six-figure salary. That about right? Ah, Femi's correcting me. He says a six-figure salary in dollars. Now, now here's the, here's the thing. Are any of those things I've said bad? But that's exactly what an idol is. It's a good thing that we make a God thing so it becomes a bad thing. It's a good thing that we make an ultimate thing, something that has to bring us joy, and the minute it becomes that, it becomes an idol. Because only one person was meant to ultimately give us joy. We were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So do the idols of South Nigeria or North Nigeria 
or Lagos provoke you? Do they anger you that something is robbing God of his glory? Does it grieve you that you see Nigerians wake up every morning working their tails off? Or as the psalmist puts it, eating the bread of their anxious toil. Yet the Lord gives to those he loves. Does it provoke you <laughs> that it doesn't matter how much these people work, doesn't matter how much they enjoy, it simply will not satisfy them. And they will be worse off after they get their idol than they were before. Maybe it doesn't. Okay, will we pray to be provoked? Will we pray Romans 5.5, 5, God pour out your love into my heart. The same love you have for these lost people, pour it into my heart. We all suffer from a form of cardiac cirrhosis. Our hearts get hard. Pray, Lord, break this heart. As churches, will we pray for the lost? And I'm not just meaning in a generic way. I mean, you come to your church's meeting or come to your small group and say, hey, my friend called Lorraine. I've been meeting with her. I'm praying for the Lord to save her. Would you pray with me? And let that start sparking prayers for the lost in our congregations. Will we ask God, because we are so provoked, to send laborers to the north? Better yet, will we be the laborers to the north? Because you know that's how God works, right? You read that passage in Matthew, he says, pray for the Lord of the harvest to send laborers. The next chapter, you are the laborers. Will we pray to be thus provoked? Because there's two reactions you can have to your Athens to your Lagos, to my Nairobi, to my Abu Dhabi, to your Dubai. Reaction one is disgust. Reaction two is awe. You can step into Lagos or step into Nairobi or step into Abu Dhabi and you're just disgusted by the idolatry and the immorality and the debauchery and you're like, I want nothing to do with that. And you create your little Christian enclave and you separate yourself from them, which is a complete misunderstanding of what that text means. And you physically separate ourselves from them because you're disgusted by them. Or the opposite, where we are in awe. We are like, look how these guys are making it. Look how they're making waves in the culture. Look how they're known everywhere. Look at their six-figure dollar salary. And you're now in awe. That's what you're living for. If you're in the first category of disgust, yeah, that's not Jesus' heart. That's not the Father's heart. How deep the Father's love for us. Of us beyond all measure, that he would what? Send his only son to make a wretch his treasure. That's the father's heart. So pray God break this heart. If you're in awe, yours is a little bit more scary. You might want to ask yourself if you're a Christian to begin with. You might want to ask yourself if my heart is enthralled and captivated by the exact same things that enthrall and captivate the unbeliever, this is the prayer I would suggest for you from 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5 and 6. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. Examine your heart. That's a literally a matter of eternal life or death. Paul has a heart for the lost. 
that forces him out and he does not compromise the gospel. Preachers in the room, we must not compromise the gospel. Preachers in the room especially, every Sunday, it's what Femi was talking about, we need to be gospel-centered because guaranteed there's at least one unbeliever in your church. If we fumble with the gospel, we are cutting hope away from them. But also, preachers in the room, when we make our sermons gospel-centered, we are teaching our churches how to share the gospel. That's why we keep doing it and keep doing it. And before you know it, your members are telling you, hey, by the way, I was sharing the gospel with my friend at work. I actually just completely stole word for word your sermon. Great! Steal, steal away. It's the only place where I'll say thou shalt steal. Go. <laughs> if it's word for word, if you rejigged it, but you made sure the gospel was clear, go for it. Because that means your heart has a passion for the lost. And church members, I don't know where you're from, but let me just issue a gentle warning, and I'm sure the pastors here would do the same. If you are part of a church that is not preaching the gospel, or ignoring the gospel, or twisting the gospel, run. A church and a pastor that does not preach the gospel or preaches a false gospel is like a blind Uber driver. They will kill you. They're like a colorblind blind painter. They're like a bad memoried historian. They're an elevator to hell. Run. Run. But the opposite is true. If you're part of a church that is preaching the gospel, whether you know it or not, you already, ha you already have a heart for the lost. You already do. Because that gospel will grab every inch of your heart and push you out, just like it did Paul. Paul has a heart for the lost, but he also has a head for the lost. We, like Paul, need to have a head that knows our world and firmly knows the word. I repeat that. We, like Paul, need to have a head that knows the world and firmly knows the word. Look at Paul in verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and said, what does this babbler wish to say? And right there you have to pause. That is not a compliment. That word babbler is an insult. In the original language, it paints the picture of a chicken. A chicken that picks up some things and spits them out. Picks up some things and spits them out. Basically, they're saying, you know nothing. You're dense. Your head is empty. You just picked up a few things and started speaking. And in my head, I'm like, this is Professor Paul. Are you kidding me? Paul could have stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with these guys and shut them down. But that's not what he does. He has a higher interest. He's not just trying to win an argument. He conversed with them. They said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. And then, he's called into the Areopagus, and they say, let us know what you're teaching about. Now, the Areopagus was a, a place where basically they were like, in my country, we have a teacher's service commission. They licensed teachers to go in and out of Athens. So you couldn't just come into Athens and teach whatever you want. If you started teaching, they'd say, well, let's listen to what you're teaching. Then they'd issue you a license. They were basically a legislative council that determined what was taught in Athens. Now, this legislative council is telling him, come explain what you mean to us so that we determine whether we are going to license you or not. Because Athens had a very strange relationship with gods and teaching. 
if you came teaching about a God, they'd first gauge, do we like this God or not? Is he a good God or bad? The better he is, the, the more we want him. The less we like him, eh, we'll not license you. Right? And they'd spend all their time, Scripture says, thinking about ideas and gods and all of this stuff. Paul gets to this Areopagus, and one of the reasons this Areopagus was famous is because about 400 years before this, there was a guy called Socrates who came to this same Areopagus. They didn't like what he was teaching, and they basically executed him. So that's the same place Paul is going to. Now, was it as intense then? Probably not. But it's a reality. If they decided, oh, we are killing this guy, that, that's it. He goes to this Areopagus. And, verse 22, listen to how he reasons. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. Now, that phrase has a double entendre, that double meaning. Very religious in that you are actually very spiritual. I see you're interested in spiritual stuff. Or, you guys are just very superstitious and weird. And he leaves it there. You decide what you are. You're very religious. For as I passed, I observed the objects of your worship, and I found also an altar with inscription, to the unknown God, because the Athenians always had a just-in-case God. <laughs> they were ruled by fear. The fear that they might not have honored some deity. Let's just have one just-in-case God. Just in case we miss something. And then he launches out into this speech, saying, I've noticed this unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Pause. He is not saying you've actually been worshipping the right God. You've just been worshipping him in the wrong way. That is not what he's saying. He's saying you guys have no idea what you're doing. You are not actually worshipping. You're worshipping unknown things. You don't know what you're worshipping. But it is certainly not the God I'm about to explain to you. And so he explains this God to them. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind and breath, sorry, mankind life and breath and everything. And he formed from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Do you know what Paul is doing here? He's basically summarizing the categories of who God is and what God does. Right? The fancy word for that is systematic theology. That's all that is. He's telling them there is a God who is the creator of everything. He's creator. He's the sustainer of everything. He's self-sufficient. He doesn't need anyone. And by the way, man has a unique relationship with him. From one man, he determined where every single person would be born. Sidebar, do you think you were born accidentally in Nigeria? It might have been an accident for your parents. I guarantee you it was not an accident for God. When you serve a sovereign God, he doesn't know what the word accident means. We do not believe in coincidence. We believe in providence, that God is guiding everything. You're not here by accident. You are not born in Nigeria by accident. He had determined the allotted times, not only where you were born, but why we were born, times and places that we would be born, and he gives the divine purpose for why we were born. He's telling the Athenians, you were born for God. <laughs> That's the whole reason. And God is not a means to an end. He is the end. You are his offspring. 
Now that offspring doesn't mean like the way we understand it, child. It means you are made in his image. You have a divine connection with him. And he is not going to be limited to a temple or sticks and stones and brick and mortar. See, Paul understands these guys have a void. Because all the Athenian gods were merely means to an end. Artemis was the god of fertility. She was a means to getting fertility, to getting children. Aphrodisia was a means to pleasure. Aphrodisia, that's why you get the word aphrodisiac. It has nothing to do with Africans. <laughs> My favorite one of the Athenian gods was called Cloexina. She was the god of the sewage system. Oh. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure how you sacrifice to this. Anyway, <laughs> there was a god for everything. But all their gods were just a means to a greater end. Paul tells them, actually, God is the end. He's not a means to something greater. He is the great one. And you see what he's doing here? He's going back to their hearts. It's almost as though he's asking them, hey, tell me, so how's Artemis working for you? Are you happier now? How's, how's Aphrodite doing for you? Are you more pleasured now? How's that going? And he's not doing it insultingly, but he's just showing you, here are your gods, here's God. And he's doing it brilliantly. What he's basically doing is that, like that C.S. Lewis quote, that we are simple creatures, far too easily pleased, playing around with mud pies, because we cannot imagine what it means to have a holiday at the beach. We are far too easily pleased. Because scripture says, at God's right hand is pleasure for? That they may glorify him and enjoy him forever. This is why it helps to know the basic worldview of the people around you. And like Paul, gently ask, how's that working for you? So tell me about your work. I, you are breaking your back at work. How, how's that working for you? Do you feel more fulfilled? People will honestly tell you no. They'll tell you, I work hard so that I can go on holiday, but I don't have the money to go for holiday. I'm tired. I'm broken. Ah, you see what's happening? You're opening their hearts and allowing something bigger to get in there. We want to know our world. The basic worldview. Now, you're not going to know every single thing about the world. The world is going to get more complicated. And the older you get, the less you'll care. But the same things that bug the human heart now will bug the human heart 3,000 years from now and until Christ returns. Do you know that basic worldview? One of the things he's challenging here with their idolatry of wealth and status He's saying, okay, so these gods of yours are supposed to make you better. Are you? And we can do the same thing today. Ideally, speaking as an African to Africans here, the better our nations are socioeconomically, the better our lives, right? And in a sense, that's true. Let's not deny it. It's much nicer to have running water than go down to the river. That's true. But internally, there's no direct relationship. Right? 81% of pain medication is taken in the world's strongest economy. If you guys are so rich, why are you in so much pain? Ah, 
because your socioeconomic status does not necessarily change what's going on inside you. And that's where Paul is going with this. So for you and I, when we read this, we get to verse 30 and we are like, oh boy. Here's what he says. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all peoples, including you, Athenians, everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, speaking of Jesus, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. That's the gospel. He said it in the marketplace. He's saying it in the Areopagus. He doesn't compromise it wherever he goes. And he's saying, if you are human, you are made to glorify God. If you are not glorifying God, judgment is coming. And it is coming by a man, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came, lived, died, rose again, and is offering you eternal life if you repent and believe in him. And he says, a very interesting phrase, he has given assurance of judgment by raising Jesus. You see, the resurrection is hope for those who believe in him and horror for those who don't. And he's telling them, look, while you have time, the other times God overlooked, he overlooked your ignorance. Now that you know, this is not going to fly. It is horror for you, but hope for you if you repent and believe. And as we did last night, I do so now. If you're in this room and you don't know Jesus, those of us who know Jesus have hope. We are going to rise, and we want that for you. We are really glad you're here, by the way. You've endured a lot just sitting around us because we know we are weird. But think about this, my unbelieving friend. You who is breathing now will stop breathing. And the God who took away your breath, you can either stand before him in one of two ways. In joy, because you know he gave you breath and you used that breath to live for him because you came to his son by turning away from your sin and trusting in him, or in pain. Let me put it more starkly, my unbelieving friend. This is the closest you will get to heaven. This messed up world, this dark world, this is as close as you get to heaven. We don't want that for you. More importantly, God doesn't want that for you. He wants that this place is the closest you'll ever get to hell. So that when you die, it's only better from there. That's what we want for you. So would you this day, if you hear his voice, would you this day turn away from your sin and trust in him? If you want to know more about that, please talk to whoever invited you here or talk to anyone here who claims they're a Christian. They will literally rearrange their whole afternoon for you. Paul has a heart for the lost. He has a head that understands the basic worldview of the lost, but he more importantly has a head that understands the word because the word is the lens through which we look at the world, not the other way around. Pastors in the room, especially senior pastors, you are not just the lead pastor of your church, you're the lead theologian of your church. It is on you what your people are taught and how they view the world is going to be based on how well we taught them. Right? Now, we obviously want to exemplify character. We obviously want to get them on mission. I'm not denigrating any of that. But I am saying if we don't give them a biblical worldview, it's only a matter of time until they start saying, why should we go out anyway? 
So let's equip them. Let's look for excuses to train them. Let's get them in the word until the word so bubbles up in them that Colossians becomes true. Let the word of God dwell richly in you. And it will only be a matter of time before that word starts going out to their friends, going out to Muslims. And then, look at Paul's hope. His heart is for the lost. His head is for the world and for the word. Look at verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again on this. So Paul went out from their midst, and some men joined and believed, among whom were also Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So Paul preaches the gospel and revival breaks out, right? Not so much. What actually happens is they mock him, which is not surprising. He probably figured that's going to happen. Think about it. The Epicureans and the Stoics, that word, Epicureans were hedonists. Their basic worldview is God started the world and went on vacation. He doesn't care. And when we die, nothing happens to us. There's no afterlife. How would you live if you knew that God is not watching, and when you die, you die. What would you live for? Pleasure. Eat, drink, and sleep, for tomorrow we die. That's the Epicureans. For them, there's no afterlife. For the Stoics, everything was God. They were pantheists. You are God. I am God. The tree is God. The stars are God. Okay? Of course, they mocked him. He's talking about a resurrection to people who don't believe in an afterlife. Of course, they'll mock him. He's talking about one man as the center point of judgment to people who believe that everything is God. Of course they'll mock him. And basically what he gets is three reactions, really two, but three reactions. Some mock him, some say, we'll listen to you next week, but others believe. And really why there are two is the first two, mocking and come later, both of those are just rejecting Jesus. That's all they are. One is a kind way of doing it, one is a more honest way of doing it. But some believed and joined him. And we have the name of two of them. Clearly, whoever joined him, there were so few, we could actually figure out who the names are. <laughs> Revival did not break out. But, in the second century, 150 years after this, there's a guy called Publius, who was martyred for preaching the gospel. 200 years after that, in the fourth century, a guy called Basil, and Gregory, those of you who know your church history, those are church fathers. They were some of the greatest theologians the world has ever produced. In other words, this little ricky-dinky thing that he did at the Areopagus, after 500 years, was basically a seminary. And the churches were strong. You see, friend, and it goes back to what has been talked about by different speakers in different ways, you are weak, your church is weak, but the gospel is mighty. If you're thinking of a picture in your head, a friend of mine uses this, think of Joshua and Jericho. Imagine you're Joshua, right? Moses has died, you're now the, the army general, and you want to take Jericho. And as an army general, you know there are five basic ways of taking Jericho. You can go above the walls, you can dig under the walls, you can ram through the walls, you can cut off the city and starve them, or you can send in like a Trojan horse and then ambush them from inside. So Joshua probably goes with this strategy, like, okay, God, I have the five-point plan. 
Which one are you going to bless? And then God tells him, okay, so Joshua, here's the plan. I want you guys to march to Jericho. Uh-huh. And then I want you to call the worship team. <laughs> then I want them to play some music. And then I want you to shout. Okay, bye. Then God goes. If I was Joshua, I'd be like, is there anyone else? Please. <laughs> now, again, put yourself in Joshua's shoes. <laughs> now, you have to go tell this to the army. Young 19 and 20-year-old buff guys who've been waiting for a fight their whole life. Rah! So you call the whole army. They show up in rank and file. They're like, Joshua, what's the plan? We are ready to die for the plan. Joshua is like, okay, here's the plan. We're going to march to Jericho. Yeah! And then we're going to call the worship team. They also need a chance, man. You see how hard they've been practicing. We're going to call the worship team. Then the worship team is going to play some music. And then we'll shout. To which, if I was one of those young men, I'd be like, I'm sorry, Joshua, my ears. Did you say shout? You mean the thing my toddler at home can do? You're sending me to die when I could just bring my toddler. See, he can shout better than me. One of the ways I know Israel was humble is they actually did this. <laughs> they get to Jericho. They are probably marching thinking, this is not going to work. This is the day we die. And then they start shouting, ah, and the walls start coming down. Can you imagine how confused they were? Fifteen years after that event, when their children were asking them, hey, dad, explain to me what happened at Jericho. What do you think the dad is going to say? You know, we all shouted, but it was my shouting voice that was amazing. Ah! Everyone was shouting like, ah. <laughs> the only honest answer you can give his son is, my son, eh? God brought those walls down. Do you know why God puts the gospel in our hands? Because we are weak. But the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The power has never been in the messenger. The power has always been in the message. The power has never actually been in the church. The power has been in the church's Lord and his unstoppable gospel. The power is not in you and your ability to articulate to your workmate Romans 1 to 15. The power is in Romans 1 15. It is the gospel of Christ. And it cannot be stopped. And it is on the move. And you might think, but what if they don't come to know Christ? Don't do someone else's job. That is beyond your pay grade. Your pay grade is share this truth. And we are not going to do it unless we have a passion, an urgency to see the lost saved. To love them so much, we will do whatever we need to do, learn whatever we need to learn, so that we can have a heart and a head of this gospel. Let me ask you a question. How many of you do sign language? Okay, one. If your child was born deaf, would you learn sign language? Because you love them. So three quick things as we close. Number one, will we love the lost? They are not the enemy, they're the mission field. Will we love the lost? And if we don't love them, we can pray. It's okay to say, Lord, I don't love the lost. He's not surprised anyway. Say, Lord, I don't love them. I actually kind of fear them. I'm very suspicious of them. I'm happy to create my own enclave. They kind of disgust me, those Muslims. Ah, the prayer is, I repent, Lord. Fill me with a love for them. Will we pray? Not just individually, but as churches. And say, Lord, what we were doing this week, 
save the north and call places by name. We pray for Imam X. We pray for Imam Y. Save them. We invite them to our prayer meetings so that they see what the real community looks like and they're like, huh. And we pray for them by name. Our friend Wakar in my church back home, a Pakistani Muslim, he keeps showing up for our prayer meetings, which is great. And we pray for him by name in his presence. Will we pray for them? Secondly, will we have a firm grip on God's word and use that as the lens that we use to see the world? I think we know some basic things about the world we live in. What we need is the right lens to see the world with. A simpler way of asking that is, will we commit to our church's training plan, our church's discipleship plan for us? Femi and Maya who was here and Scott and One, these people spend hours figuring out how to teach us. Why? So that we can do this. So that when we go out to the world and someone asks us, why do you believe in Jesus? Uh, uh, because he gave me a car. No? So that we may have a reason. That's why they spend that much time. Will we commit ourselves to that, our local church's plan to train and disciple us? Last question. Will we just go out and share the gospel? My favorite definition of evangelism is it's two scared people having an awkward conversation. And it's not just awkward for you. Think about a guy like One. When he's on the plane, he starts a conversation with a guy. He's like, oh yeah, I'm an engineer. Oh yeah, how's that going? Yeah, great. And then that guy asked him, and you, One, what do you do? I'm a pastor. You don't think that's awkward? Because the guy looks at him like, oh no. And One is going, ah man, I'm sorry. We have to do this now, man. I'm... I have to share the gospel with you. I'm literally paid to do this. It's awkward for everyone. But it is life-giving for everyone. We close with a story of a guy called John Flavel and a guy called Luke Short. Luke Short was an Englishman who was born and raised in England. And then he, while he was in England, when he was 15 years old, he listened to a sermon by a preacher called John Flavel. And he was like, mm, okay, it's a nice sermon, whatever. He, he did not give his life to Christ. He then moved to the United States and uh, was not a bad guy, but lived as an agnostic or atheist his whole life. He was just like, yeah. I'm a good farmer and had a huge farm. One day when he was 100 years old, walking in his farm, he remembered a sermon that was preached by John Flavo 85 years ago. And on his farm, he knelt down and said, Jesus, forgive me. I give my life to you. John Flavo had been dead for like 80 years. You see, sometimes the gospel you preach will stay in the ground until you do and then it will spring up. Sometimes the children you're teaching the gospel right now in Sunday school, you will die before they do, and then when they're like 70, they'll remember this lady who told me about God and Jesus and the gospel, and the Holy Spirit will use that and save them. Your prayers will outlive you, and the gospel will outlive you. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.